are few things on earth that generate more conversation than wine. For many, the thirst for wine knowledge becomes an obsession. We all know people who are passionate about sharing that knowledge and their opinions about wine. We call some of those folks sommeliers, wine aficionados, wine experts, wine gurus, and the most commonly used title, boring. Welcome to Grape Encounters. We love wine just as much as anyone else, but while we crave those special wines that are silky smooth and go down so easy, we find an awful lot of the conversations about wine pretty hard to swallow. There is one overriding premise here at Grape Encounters. Wine pairs best with life. Accordingly, your host David Wilson, his guests, and the rest of us on the team are here to show you a great time, how to have more fun with your wine, where to enjoy wine the most, how to immerse yourself into a wine lifestyle that isn't simply about wine. So let's dive into this week's edition of Grape Encounters. Oh, you'll learn plenty, but hopefully it will be knowledge that you can really use. Not like that Latin class you took in high school. Here's your wine captain, David Wilson. And it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. And boy, there are three topics that I wanted to talk about this week. And as I was researching and, you know, kind of preparing for this week's show, it occurred to me that there's a guy out there. He is one of the most prominent industry experts, especially when it comes to the topics that I'm going to talk about today. He knows so much about all of these topics that I couldn't resist getting him on the phone today. The topics that we're going to talk about, first of all, if you haven't heard, it's probably because you haven't been watching the news, but a very important Supreme Court decision regarding the wine business. And we're going to talk about what that means to both the wine retailers and the consumer. The second is marketing to millennials. And it's a topic that I am so sick of hearing about because it seems like everybody in the wine business feels like, oh my gosh, we got to cater to the millennials and forgetting that there are still baby boomers out there and Gen Xers out there. So we're going to get into that. And then finally, we're also going to talk about what is the sweet spot when you're buying wine and what is it that consumers really want in a glass of wine? Well, Tom Wark is with me today. He's recognized as one of the wine industry's most prominent and active public relations professionals and industry communicators. He has a totally wonderful blog as well called Fermentation. And Tom is with us from Oregon. You're up there and it's raining up there, Tom. It is raining up here. What a surprise. It's Oregon. Hey, thanks very much for having me on the show. I love being with you. Oh, my gosh. You know, we've had you on a couple times before, and you're a wealth of information. And you had written something on the blog that it's one of the things that caught my attention this week. And I said, oh, I, I want to talk about that for sure. But you've you've been at this for a super long time. You've you've had your consulting firm, Work Communications, since since when? 1994, I got into the wine business in 1990 as a little neophyte out of college, and I worked at a PR firm. It took me about three years to figure out how much I was being paid versus how much the clients I was servicing were paying the firm, and I said, I got to do this myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I did it myself starting in 1994, and then I started the wine blog in 2004, and I've been blogging about wine and the wine industry and culture and politics and wine ever since. Well, culture being the operative word, and I think that's really what we're going to be talking about mostly today, because the market 
marketing of wine has become so significant. I mean, there was a time way back when when a wine bottle just had a simple description of the wine and who made it on the label. And now we're playing all kinds of tricks, you know, to try to get people to buy wine. And, And a lot of those tricks are guided by, I think, the false assumption that who we really should care about are the millennials. But save that. I, we're going to get back to that. But let's talk about what happened at the Supreme Court yesterday. This was a biggie. Yeah, this is this is the biggest decision to come out of the Supreme Court concerning wine and alcohol in 15 years. And basically, the upshot of this decision is that it's eventually going to give consumers much more access to the wines they want, be they common wines or obscure wines or hard-to-find wines or collectible wines. It was a big decision. Basically, the decision, by the way, was called uh, Tennessee Wine versus Thomas. And what the Supreme Court said was that the decision that they rendered in 2005 that allowed wineries to begin direct shipping across state lines, their reasoning in that decision, they said yesterday, also applies to wine retailers or wine stores. So after 2005 and this Granholm versus Heald Supreme Court decision, lots of states found out they couldn't discriminate against out-of-state wineries. They couldn't block out-of-state wineries from shipping into states if they allowed their own wineries to ship in that state. But as the laws changed after that decision, the states still discriminated against out-of-state retailers. And so now there are 45 states that will allow out-of-state wineries to ship in, but there are only 15 states that allow out-of-state retailers to ship in. Well, yesterday, Justice Alito, writing for a 7-2 to majority, said that our 2005 decision in Granholm versus Heald doesn't just apply to, to wineries. It also applies to retailers. And so what this means is over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of states change their laws with regard to interstate retailer to consumer shipping. And that's important because here's the thing. If you live in a state where you can't have wine shipped to you from an out-of-state retailer, that means you can't have any imported wines shipped to you because only retailers sell Imported wine. Yeah, right. Auction houses are retailers. Wine of the month clubs are retailers. And so this decision down the road, after all the politics is worked through, is going to definitely create greater access to, to wines than uh, consumers currently have in a lot of states. You know, it's really a terrible situation that persists today. I have people bring this up to me all the time that live in more oppressive states where literally, you know, they go into wherever it is that they buy their wine and they can't get most of the wines that the rest of us can get. And and they they don't even understand why. They don't understand why. Well, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? We live in the age of internet commerce and then you want to go online and you want to buy that obscure wine that you read about or heard about, you know, on Grape Encounters Radio, and all of a sudden you can't do it because, oh, it's against the law for a retailer to ship you wine. Now, I'll grant you, though, wineries have done a really good job of, of pushing their right to not be discriminated against, and they've opened up a lot of states for winery to consumer shipping. And so, again, there's 45 states that will allow it in one way or another, but again, only 15 states will allow an out-of-state retailer or auction house or wine of the month club to ship in. That's going to change after this decision. All right, so let's talk about what was happening in Tennessee because basically, as I understand it, they have a restriction that says that if you're going to sell wine retail in the state of Tennessee, then you, the operator of that retail establishment, have to have lived in Tennessee for two years. Do I have that right? Kind of. So okay, all right. It's, it's really kind of funny. Okay. Tennessee had this law in the books that said... 
in order to get a retail license in the state to sell liquor or wine, you had to be a resident of the state for two years. So you had to move there first, wait two years, and then you could apply <laughs> for your license. But the other part of the law said that in order to renew that law, and it had to be renewed annually, you had to wait 10 years to renew it. What? I know. Think about that for a second. Holy so God. the state of Tennessee realized fairly quickly this second part, this 10 years, you have to wait before you can renew it. We're not even going to try to defend that. But what they did try to do was to defend the idea that you had to be a resident for two years before the state could give you a license. But the Tennessee Wine and Spirits Retailers Association, they didn't want any other you know, stores coming into their state and competing with them. So they challenged it and they pressed it through the courts and they finally got up to the Supreme Court. And what they argued was this. This is not a violation of interstate commerce. We're not interfering with interstate commerce by forcing people to wait two years. And the way we know that is because the 21st Amendment says the state can do whatever it wants with regard to alcohol regulation. Yes, 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 we know, they said, that we can't discriminate against winery shipping, you know, and can't discriminate against wineries, but we can discriminate against retailers all we want. That notion didn't right. fly with the court. Hold said. that thought, Tom, for a second. We're talking to Tom Wark. He is the founder and and president of Work Communications. He's one of the most renowned experts in the area of wine PR. He also has one of the most respected blogs. And uh, you're based up in the Willamette Valley, right? I recently moved up to the Willamette Valley from Napa Valley, so I'm still in a valley. You're still in a valley. Okay, well, we're going to jump into a valley right now that we call a commercial break and listen attentively because these ladies and gentlemen make Grape Encounters possible. We'll be back with my guest, Tom Work, in just a moment. Before we continue, I want to do you a favor. Write down two words or get Siri or Alexa to remember them for you. The words are peak, that's P-E-A-K-E, ranch. Now, over the past 10 years that I've been talking all things wine, my product endorsements have definitely been few and far between. That's because I'm not just a wine journalist. I'm also a wine critic and a wine judge, and I've got a reputation. Not that kind of reputation. Anyway, the wines of Peak Ranch would easily win a gold medal from me in any blind tasting. They're a small boutique label making wines from grapes grown on one of California's most legendary properties. Log on to peakranch.com, read their story, and buy a bottle or two or three. These wines are huge winners. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. Do you ever wonder what goes on in the Grape Encounter studio while you're listening to the commercial break? Research. Yeah, that's what we do. Research. You can never do too much research. We like to talk about wine. The Oregon Wine Experience's Founders Barrel Auction on Friday, August 23rd is an afternoon of elegance. Sample wine futures from Authentique Wine Cellars, Hewitt Cellars, Laurel Ridge Winery, Left Coast Estate, Russell Prayer Rock Vineyards, Stone Griffin Vineyard, Vulcan Cellars, plus many more. The action takes off as you bid on the opportunity to win a case or the whole barrel of Oregon's finest wines. Go to TheOregonWineExperience.com to purchase tickets. The Oregon Wine Experience, it's everything Oregon. In Greek mythology, we learn the mysterious connection between walnuts and wine. When Dionysus, the god of wine, fell in love with Princess Caria of Laconia, her sisters tried to prevent the romance, so Dionysus turned them into rocks. He also turned his beloved Caria into a walnut tree. She was, after all, a hard nut to crack. 
At mmorganics.com in Paso Robles, California, Walnuts and Wine is the ultimate love story. You'll flip over their 100% organic port-style dessert wines and organic heirloom walnut products, including sprouted snacking walnuts in five awesome flavors, irresistible raw organic walnut butter, free trade chocolate-covered walnuts, and for bakers, MM Organics produces 100% gluten-free walnut flour, estate walnut oil, and of course, their crazy delicious raw walnuts. Get all their products online at mmorganics.com. That's mmorganics.com. Nestled right in between two world-class wine countries, Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the perfect gateway to nearly endless wine country adventures. Cozy and oh-so-friendly, make historic Atascadero home base for adventures to hundreds of surrounding wineries, the nearby Pacific, and magical Hearst Castle, plus an amazing array of attractions from zip lining to delectable dining. Discover all that affordable Atascadero has to offer at visitatascadero.com. Welcome back to Grape Encounters Radio. Since we aren't a TV show, we'd love for you to see and learn more about our incredible wine country town. Check out visitatascadero.com. Once you see how good we've got it, Maybe you'll plan a trip to see us in person. Oh my gosh, so much to talk about in the news this week. We've been talking with Tom Wark. He's the president CEO of Work Communications. And they're really widely respected as being one of the finest when it comes to wine PR, wine communication. And uh, Tom Wark is my guest and nobody's more plugged into what's been going on with this Supreme Court decision than Tom is. So, Tom, let's just talk about what happens now, because they've really opened the door, have they not, to pretty much ending over maybe a short period of time all of these oppressive restrictions. Yes, they have. So there are about 20 states where those states' retailers can ship to residents in the state, can ship wine to residents in those states, but they prohibit out-of-state retailers from shipping to consumers in those states. And those are the places where those laws are vulnerable. Those are the states where laws are going to change. And so we're talking about Washington State, New York, Texas, Illinois, North Carolina, South Carolina, Colorado, Arizona, etc. What's going to happen in those states is their legislatures will be asked to change their laws due to this Supreme Court decision that says you can't discriminate against out-of-state retailers. Now, the state may decide to make changes or they may decide to not make any change at all. And in that case, they're going to have to be sued. So as a result of politics taking a long time, as we all know, I think we're going to see some significant changes in consumer access to wine over the next, I'd say, two to five years. Some will happen more quickly than others. Some states will open up more quickly than others. And different tools will be used to to open up those states. There is an organization, though, called winefreedom.org, and they sort of represent consumers, and they give consumers um, ways to uh, to act in their own self-interest. And so if any of your listeners want to be involved in helping to open up their own state or change the laws in their state, they should go to winefreedom.org and, and sign up and, and 
thing. They'll get instructions on whether or not there are bills in their state or laws are changing in their state, or et cetera. But it's an exciting time for consumer access to wine. We've been waiting a long, long time for this decision, and so have consumers in a lot of states. So let me ask you this. The basis of a lot of these discriminatory policies is trying to protect the health and well-being of the consumer. At least that's how they've they've clothed this thing. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's really unfortunate. The reason that you have laws that will allow an in-state retailer to ship to residents there but ban out-of-state retailers from doing it, it's almost always pure protectionism. They simply don't want the competition from out-of-state. They want consumers in a state to be forced to buy the wines that are brought into that state by wholesalers and sold by retailers in those states. Now, the vast majority of people are going to be just fine with what's ever available at retail in their state, and that's great. But sometimes you have consumers who hear about a wine. Maybe they hear about a wine or a winery on your show. Or maybe they went to Europe, they went to Italy or France, and they came across a small um, winery or chateau. When they got back home, they wanted to buy it, but it wasn't available at their retailer. So they go online and try to buy it from a retailer, and they can't. So for those people, this kind of protectionism, it doesn't work for them. And what the Supreme Court said yesterday was that you cannot justify a law um, on protectionist reasons alone. You can't say, we just want to protect our retailers. We just want to protect our wholesalers. That kind of thing isn't going to stand. Is that some form of restraint of trade? Is that what we would call it? Yeah, restraint of trade is not absolutely the best um, phrase for it. The best phrase is going to be it's a violation of the interstate commerce clause of the Constitution. The Constitution says that it's the federal government who has the right to regulate interstate commerce, commerce between the states. And as a result of that, obviously, states can't infringe on the federal government's right to regulate that. But they do when they say, no, 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 you can't ship in here. Now, that whole theory is complicated a little bit by the 21st Amendment that ended prohibition and also gave the states the right to regulate wine in their states. But the 21st Amendment, the power of the states to regulate wine, doesn't mean that right overshadows all the other parts of the Constitution. And so that's where the debate is. To what extent does the 21st Amendment give states the right to regulate interstate commerce? It's a complex question, and it's been one that actually has been litigated since the early 1800s. And this is just the latest decision, but it happens to be a real pro-consumer decision. So there's been a lot of celebration in the wine industry the last couple of days. Well, at least in our house there was. (laughs) Uh, Now, now how how have you been directly involved? Well, I've been working with an organization called the National Association of Wine Retailers for a very, very long time. And they've been active in trying to change different laws in different states. And they've been involved in litigation and whatnot. And the members of this association, you would know them. They're the fine wine retailers in every state. You know, they're the they're the Zaki's and K&L's and whatnot of the world. They're the fine wine retailers. And they're the ones who have really been harmed by these protectionist laws that prevent them from shipping wine. But in addition to that, I mean, I've been involved in the wine shipping debate since, uh, since probably 1998 when I started to work for a variety of different folks who were interested in this issue. And I happen to be, I'm an advocate for the little guy. I always have been. Some of my first clients were little guys who were involved in the politics of wine, and they really inspired me. Um, I worked with Matanzas Creek Winery up in Sonoma for many years, and one of their owners, Bill McKeever, was an absolute advocate for consumers and small wineries. And he sort of was a, uh, he was a real mentor for me, and I just sort of picked up the baton from him and kept going. And I've enjoyed the debate and, and the successes that we've had. Yeah. 
All right, we're going to move on to two other topics, Tom, in in just a second. But you wrote a very interesting blog that really captured my attention, and it really came down to what is it that consumers really want in a wine? And I, and I like the headline, delicious, easily accessed, low-priced alcohol, what consumers, and then you have in parentheses, will want. Yeah. <laughs> Explain right. the parentheses. Well, I was reading an article from a, a very well-respected uh, member of the industry, a, a writer. Her name is Luli Halstead. She writes for an organization called Wine Intelligence. Right. And she made the case that what wine consumers really want are four things, personalization, experience, convenience, and sustainability. And I thought to myself, you know, the vast majority of people in the United States they're buying wines that cost somewhere in the neighborhood $10 a bottle. And for $10 a bottle, I got to tell you, they're not looking for sustainability and they're not looking for personalization, what they would easily access. That's the criteria. That's what they want. Now, when they move up in price, when you start to get to $25 and $50 a bottle, then the consumer starts to look a little bit more like Ms. Halstead is is talking about. They want a little bit more. They want more story. They want more personalization. Okay. They want more experience. People. Tom, I'm going to interrupt for just a second, okay? Hold the thought for a second, okay? Sure. Because we're getting into the meat and potatoes of <laughs> meat and potatoes of wine. Anyway, we're talking to Tom Work. We're going to be back in just a second. Tom Work, the author of a blog called Fermentation, but also the founder of Work Communications, which is plugged into so many aspects of the wine industry especially when it comes to what consumers want and how we communicate with them and how we present wine to the public. So we're going to talk more about what people really want in a bottle of wine with Tom Work in just a moment. David will be back with more Grape Encounters in a couple of minutes, which means there simply isn't enough time for him to enjoy more than a sip or two of one of his faves. Oh, the sacrifices we make in the broadcasting business. Summertime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. If you're topping off your burger with grilled onions and blue cheese, pair your work of art with a spicy Malbec. Nothing beats a buttery Chardonnay with grilled corn on the cob. I'm ready to find you the perfect bottle of white for your next get-together. Pack up the cooler for this weekend. We've got canned wine and beer ready to throw on ice. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this summer at Total Wine & More. Cheers! I want to take this opportunity to tell you about the wines of Peak Ranch. I recently discovered these truly amazing wines that are raking in top honors from the wine press. What I didn't initially realize is that I had a very strong connection to these perfectly crafted Pinots, Syrahs, Chardonnays, and more. Remarkably, these wines are produced by my very best friend from the first grade, John Wagner. Now, I have to say that John has always one-upped me in almost everything he does, and these extraordinary wines are no exception. Made from grapes grown on one of California's most historic Central Coast properties, there is no other word to describe them than perfect. Peak Ranch is doing everything right. Amazing wines that will absolutely astound you. Buy them online at peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. 
Savor Oregon's finest wines at the Oregon Wine Experience's Grand Tasting on Sunday, August 25th. Work your way through the tasting tables and enjoy an array of delicious culinary bites. Don't miss this special opportunity to sample wines from all corners of Oregon in one unique location. The wine pours start at 2 p.m. Plan your experience today. Go to theoregonwineexperience.com to purchase tickets. The Oregon Wine Experience, it's everything Oregon. Welcome back to Grape Encounters, where we believe there's no way to fake a great wine, and where we never fake our disdain for the really bad ones. So what is it that you really want in a wine? Well, there are a lot of experts out there that have different opinions about what consumers really want. I've been in the business for a pretty long time now, and I tell you, my opinion is is pretty basic and simple. People want something that tastes really yummy to them, and hopefully they want us in the wine business to be able to identify what it is that they're loving in a wine and help them find more of it at a decent price. But that's not necessarily what the rest of the experts think. I'll tell you one expert that I trust tremendously is Tom Work of Work Communications. He works with a ton of wineries, associations, has a really excellent grasp on the wine consumer. And Tom, we were just started to talk in the last segment about your latest blog, Delicious, Easily Accessed, Low-Priced Alcohol, What Consumers Will Want. Pick it up where we left off. We were just well, talking about Luli Halstead. You know, She's a writer, a very good writer, and she suggested that personalization, experience, convenience, and sustainability is what most consumers want out of a wine. And the only thing I wanted to, uh, to say in this in this particular article was that I think consumers want something more basic. They want a well-priced wine. They want it to have alcohol in it. They want it to be delicious, and they want it to be convenient. And these are like the primary things that the vast majority of consumers want, and the vast majority of consumers buy wine at that ten to fifteen dollar bottle of wine, which is a different. The people who buy wine at that price, they have a different mentality than the people who are buying wine at fifty dollars a bottle. But I want to say that one of the reasons I wrote this was because I think that the people in the wine industry are going to have to start thinking about how to sell wine to people who pay less. And the reason I think that they're going to have to start thinking that is. I think we're in a pre-recessionary time. I'd bet a lot of money that a recession is coming relatively soon. And when that happens, people continue to buy alcohol, but they pay less for it. And so if you're used to marketing your wine or selling wine that's $25 a bottle, you better start thinking about what it takes to sell wine to somebody who wants to pay $15 a bottle under those economic conditions. And a lot of times in this industry, something like a recession will overtake the industry fairly quickly, and they've never thought about how they're going to react to it. And I just was trying to suggest to people that you better start thinking about the concept of price and deliciousness and convenience. You fired a warning shot. I think it's coming. I do. Uh, most of the in- economic indicators suggest that we're moving in that direction. So there's so there's so many things to talk about on this subject because... You know, one thing that I always try to keep top of mind is the idea that those $10 bottles of wine that we have today are so much better than comparably priced wines 20 years ago. I mean, we know how to make 
good and relatively inexpensive wine today. And if you could literally, you know, pull a, a, a bottle from 25 years ago, 20 years ago, and put it side by side, you know, they wouldn't both be $10 because $10 25 years ago would, buy, would have bought you a lot. But let's say comparably priced based on the year, the wines today are just so outstanding. And there's very little bad wine out there, really. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. When I got in the business 25 some odd years ago, the equivalent of a $10 bottle of wine was maybe a $4 bottle right. of wine. And I think they called them fighting varietals at the time. And the quality of those wines compared with comparable wines today, there is no comparison. You have to work your butt off today to make a bad wine. At $10 a bottle, there are a plethora of wines that you can buy that are absolutely delicious. So, uh, we're, I mean, I've, always, I've said for a number of years now that we're, winning, we're living in the golden age of wine. For yeah, consumers. absolutely. And I still believe that. And the golden age of wine really comes down to the quality and diversity of wines that are available today. Well, what's really interesting is that there have been some very captivating studies that I have seen recently where they're looking at blind tastings by average consumers and lots of them and finding that they actually prefer, in a blind tasting, lesser expensive wines. And I, I don't know if that's a function of, you know, those wines being, you know, typically more fruit forward and a little less sophisticated. And I don't say that in a bad way because, look, you know, if you, if you pour a $5 bottle of wine, glass of wine, and you love it, and you can really say, I love this wine, then, you know, you don't really need to be spending 60 or $100. I mean, if you want to, but for a lot of people, that's splitting hairs. And I encourage people to go, especially go to a wine bar, a fine wine bar, and go ahead and pay a little bit more for a glass of wine rather than buying an expensive bottle. See if it really does, you know, take you to a level that you didn't expect you were going to get to. And if that's the case, then you can experiment with more more costly wines. But, uh, you know, there is a difference, I would say, Tom, between a really extraordinary wine that costs a lot of money and was babied, you know, from start to finish versus something that's made in larger quantities. Well, I'm also going to argue, though, that somebody who's buying, uh, who's happily paying $100 a bottle for the wines that they drink. They're looking for quality, no question about it, but they're not expecting it to be a $100 bottle of quality wine. There's much more that goes into it. It's the experience. It's the idea of drinking something that's much more rare, much more coveted. It's often linked to their visit to a particular place or a particular vineyard. There's much more that goes into the process of appreciating a $100 bottle of wine. And if what you want is something that taste delicious and that will give you a little bit of a buzz and that won't cost you an arm and a leg, I can probably show you a thousand different wines that cost $15 bottle, $15 or less that will satisfy you to no end. That's a lot of wines, Tom. <laughs> oh, they're all over the place. Well, I think that the most important thing is that the expectations of the consumer of a $10 bottle of wine are different than the expectations of a consumer who's buying that $100 bottle of wine. They're looking for different things. It better be different, that's for sure, because yeah, it, yes, it, not, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, and, and I will tell you, you know, I'm, I drink plenty of $100 wine, but I also speak to, I think, the vast majority of wine drinkers who aren't, you know, in that place where they can spend, you know, $1,000 a month on wine. Which, well, let me give you a perfect example. Okay, go ahead. 
I will happily spend, say, two to two hundred and fifty dollars on a particular bottle of wine. And one of those wines that I'll spend it on is an old, say, thirty, thirty-five, forty-year-old bottle of Stony Hill Chardonnay. Okay. Now, this is a Chardonnay that's grown up in the hills in Napa Valley. It was one of the first ever cult wines, but it was Chardonnay, so it never got really super, super duper popular. But they make an amazing Chardonnay, and it ages so well. But more importantly, when I open one of those bottles, I'm opening a 40-year-old bottle. I know the vineyard that it came from. I've walked through that vineyard. I know that there's no more than probably 200 of those bottles left in the entire world. That's what $200 buys me. You know, I used to really love, uh, I haven't bought any recently, but I used to love to buy 100- and 200-year-old Madeiras. Oh, yeah. Because the, the reason that they're so interesting is because they harvest the grapes up in the hills, and in those times, they would put the juice into what amounts to a giant Boda bag. And, yeah. they would, and they would cart it down the mountain, you know, in excruciating heat. And this is a fortified wine that's intentionally oxidized. But the interesting thing is, is that when you drink a glass of that wine, you can taste that, that sheepskin. You can taste it in there. And you say to yourself, oh, my gosh, this was a sheep that lived, you know, 200 years ago. And there have been heaven knows how many generations of this family that have come and gone. And this wine has been babied all that time. And it's seen world wars. And it's seen, yeah. you know, man walk on the moon. And it gives you a very different perspective of the wine. And I, and I encourage people to have those experiences because it's going to be different than opening up a, a screw cap wine that costs you $10 for maybe a liter. That's a perfect example of what people talk about when they talk about, oh, wine is art, which is one of the most pretentious things you could possibly say. But this idea of drinking a 253, 400, 500-year-old Madeira, it's, it's like sipping your way through history. It is sipping yep, your way through history. And you would never mistake an old Madeira for any other wine in the world. There's yeah, nothing ab- else that tastes like it. It's an amazing experience. Absolutely. Okay, Tom, we're going to take a quick break, come back for one more segment, and we're going to get into the topic of marketing to millennials. It used to be something I love to talk about on the show, and now I just, I every time the topic comes up, I just, I, honestly, I kind of want to puke. I'm just I'm so tired. I I'm so tired of it. So we're going to get back. Yeah, we're going to get into that topic when we get back with Tom Work uh, from Work Communications and Fermentation, the Daily Wine Blog. Check it out. Tom is a genius, I tell you. He's a genius. And that's why he lives in Oregon, because there's a lot of geniuses up there. All right, we'll be back with more Grape, grape Encounters right after this. Sometimes drinking wine makes you just want to curl up in a comfy chair and dream about puppy dogs, faraway places, and other happy thoughts. Or you can just enjoy that cuvee in your glass and lose yourself in the conversation on Grape Encounters Radio. Summertime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Nothing beats beers and burgers. And with so many to choose from, we've got the perfect cold one waiting for you. Serving up salads at your cookout this weekend? Add a dry rosé to the table for a perfect pairing. When I'm the barbecue grill master, I've got to have a cold lager in my hand. Hey, grab me another. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this summer at Total Wine and More. Cheers. 
Nestled right in between two world-class wine countries, Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the perfect gateway to nearly endless wine country adventures. Cozy and oh-so-friendly, make historic Atascadero home base for adventures to hundreds of surrounding wineries, the nearby Pacific, and magical Hearst Castle, plus an amazing array of attractions from ziplining to delectable dining. Discover all that affordable Atascadero has to offer at visitatascadero.com. I want to take this opportunity to tell you about the wines of Peak Ranch. I recently discovered these truly amazing wines that are raking in top honors from the wine press. What I didn't initially realize is that I had a very strong connection to these perfectly crafted Pinots, Syrahs, Chardonnays, and more. Remarkably, these wines are produced by my very best friend from the first grade, John Wagner. Now, I have to say that John has always one-upped me in almost everything he does, and these extraordinary wines are no exception. Made from grapes grown on one of California's most historic Central Coast properties, there is no other word to describe them than perfect. Peak Ranch is doing everything right. Amazing wines that will absolutely astound you. Buy them online at peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. People often ask, why hasn't someone tarred and feathered Grape Encounters host David Wilson for breaking so many of the old rules? Simple. No one likes the old rules. All right, there are a lot of wine drinkers out there from every imaginable generation, unless they're uh, under 21, of course. And there's one generation that is just getting so much attention from the wine media. And I think that we've just got to tone it down a little bit because we're neglecting other generations that are really the heart and soul of the wine business. Very important consumers that I think are getting overlooked for millennials. And so who better to talk about this than one of the great experts on wine marketing, Tom Wark. Tom, are you sick of it too, or is it just me? I may be overreacting, I suppose. It does seem like we've been talking about millennials since before they were born. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but we are, the thing about the millennials is this, I understand why everyone talks about them because they are a huge cohort. They're a huge group of people, larger than the boomers, in fact, but they're different than the boomers. The boomers are the people who are responsible for the wine boom in the United States. They had a lot of disposable income. Wine was becoming more popular. There was more access to information about wine. They really built the modern wine industry. But now what people are discovering about millennials is they appear not to be as excited about wine as their parents, and they certainly aren't buying wine at the same rate that their parents did when they were their age. So the first thing everyone wanted to know was, well, why is this the case? Do they just hate wine? Well, the problem is the, the millennials got a little bit of a, a – they got the short end of the stick with regard to the economy. A lot of things have conspired against them. The fact of the matter is they simply don't have the disposable income that baby right, boomers yeah. did at their age. That's the primary reason why you see millennials today more often buying different kinds of alcohol. So it's, it's easier for them, for example, to go out and buy drinks than it is for them to go out and buy a bottle of wine. It's easier for them to buy a, a fifth of a craft spirit than it is to pay the same for just a bottle of wine. And so that's happening a lot. Also, millennials have been exposed to so many more 
flavors and textures when it comes to eating and drinking than boomers were, and even in some cases, Gen Xers. So they have sort of a different taste profile. But nevertheless, a lot of people in the wine industry are getting are feeling a lot of angst about this generation. The questions are coming up like, are they going to kill wine? You know, is our wine sales going to die? But here's my theory. My theory is eventually baby boomers are going to die. And eventually, that's not a theory, Tom. That's to a fa- that's not a theory. That's a fact. Okay. That's, okay. Well, yeah. for now, it's my working theory. It's going to happen. And what's going to happen when that happens is the millennials will take their jobs, and that's when they're going to have disposable income. And I don't think there's any possibility that millennials will run away from wine. I think once they have the ability to purchase it, that they'll be equally excited about wine as their parents were. They'll be equally excited about traveling to places like Paso Robles and Bordeaux and the Willamette Valley and the Finger Lakes. And that's when their disposable income will become a measurable amount of sales in the wine industry. There's a generation in between, though. What about them? And they're picking up the slack for the for the baby boomers who are done spending their money on wine. The Gen X generation is spending just about as much as the baby boomers currently are. So I'm getting asked all the time, though, how, how do we have to switch our marketing in order to appeal to millennials? And some of the ideas that people have for marketing wine to millennials is, is interesting, to say the least. I'm not sure I can recommend to my clients that they change their marketing altogether just to appeal to a, a stereotype of the millennial buyer. I think it makes sense to continue to tell your story to people. Talk about your vineyard and your people and what makes your wine unique. I think millennials will appreciate an honest retelling of a true tale. I appreciate you saying that because I think you really hit the nail on the head. Five years ago, everybody was sitting back going, oh my gosh, the millennials, they're so much more willing to explore and take chances. The millennials are so much more plugged in. And all this is true. And by the way, this is not an assault on millennials. It's an assault on people who are obsessed with marketing to millennials because the truth be known, the same things that captivated Gen Xers about fine wine and baby boomers about fine wine will captivate generations to come. And it better because the wine is not going to change. It's going to be pressed juice. Exactly. So yeah. I just think that we're getting a little off base here. And, you know, and, and, and I, I, by the way, appreciate all the new packaging options. And, I, you know, I have fun looking at the creativity that goes into labeling. But there are two groups that I think are really misunderstood and taken advantage of. Millennials are one and women are the other. You know, that, that all of a sudden, you know, they're in the last several years, we've been you know, creating all this packaging geared toward women, whether it's little black dress or uh, other things. And I'm not saying it's terrible, but I think in the end, the label needs to match what's inside the bottle or the box or whatever. And if it's just some kind of a clever way to get me to buy it, and what I've bought, at least from, you know, a superficial, you know, look at that product, better match what I'm going to drink. Yeah, in all honesty, there have been some pretty offensive attempts to market to women and to mommies and yeah, whatnot. Terrible. And I agree with you 100% on that. But, you know, going back to millennials, people who complain that, oh, you know, or they haven't complained, but they've said they drink a much wider variety of wines and they explore with their palate much more. And so what they're talking about when, when people say that is that more millennials are likely to buy maybe a rosé from Chile or a Pinot Grigio from Spain or from Italy, these sort of new things that we're seeing. 
on the market. But the reason that they're more likely to buy those is because those wines cost less. That's exactly what I was going to say. They're inexpensive. Right. You know, Chilean wines are a tremendous value. You know, you pay a third for the same kind of quality in Chile that you might pay for something domestic. Hey, Tom, we're out of time. I could talk to you forever about this and the other topics that we've been communicating about here, but I sure appreciate it. If people want to know more of it, can subscribe, by the way, to your blog, right? They sure can. Yeah, it's Fermentation Wine Blog. If you want to subscribe and get an alert wherever, whenever there's a new post, there's a little place for you to put your email address in there, and I'll make sure that you get an email two or three times a week letting you know there's a new post at Fermentation. And you'll send them a free bottle of wine once a month? I will not do that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd ask. Hey, Tom, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's been great having you on. As always. It's my pleasure. I love being on your show. Thank you. Uh, You're very welcome. Hey, guys, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters for today, and we'll be back here, same station, same time, next week. New topic. We'll see you then. Well, this episode of Grape Encounters is in the bag. It's hard to imagine you haven't missed some episodes, so why not hunt them down at GrapeEncounters.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and other podcast sites. Grape Encounters Studios are located in beautiful Atascadero, California. That's Central Coast wine country, baby. Come visit us. But be warned, you won't want to leave. That's okay. We have a spare bedroom. But it's 55 degrees and full of old bottles.